for the Christian, ultimately we are continually tempted to disbelieve the word and the callings of God on our life. And our behavior is the result of doubt. Our behavior is the result of questioning. Our behavior is the result of of disobeying. We have an enemy that continues to push, to follow, to try to instill doubt in our minds about the things of God. To convince us that that could not be from God. That could not be his sign to you. He did not come to you in that dream. John chapter 7 is John chapter 7 to everyone. What makes you think it's so specific to your situation? The enemy whispers and tempts us away from the truth of who God is. I mean, have you ever had that moment where you just feel in your spirit, this was from God. This this is what God is telling me, whether it be through the word, whether it be through prayer, whether it be through a brother or a sister, somebody speaking into your life. There's just no doubt about it in your mind that the Lord has spoken to you and then... That voice starts to play. Really? Really? That was God? How can you be sure? How can you know that that was him speaking to you? Seems a little far-fetched, doesn't it? Could be any number of things or reasons why that has happened or that feeling has been in and churning around in you. Ultimately, temptation pulls us away from the word of God. Pulls us away from the plans that God has for us. And makes us think or puts the question in our brain or the statement in our brain that, you know what? I can probably handle this much better. I can probably do, but I'm going to take this into my own hands and I'll figure this out. There's two stories in the Bible we're going to look at this morning. One is about this guy named Adam, and he has a wife named Eve. And the other is about, well, it's about Jesus, but he's considered the second Adam. And they're both faced with a decision that they have to make. Big decisions that they have to make. Both are just kind of tormented in the, in the situation that they found themselves in. Tempted to take things into their own hand. One fails The other succeeds. And so, let's read Adam and Eve's story first. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining knowledge or for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. A talking snake. 
Now, contrary to popular belief, when this snake begins to talk, it's not an evil snake because sin doesn't come in till chapter till verse six. And God has created everything and everything is good. You know how I know that everything is good because God said it was good. But this snake begins to to talk and it says that it's crafty. Now, that doesn't mean that it's evil. It means that it's kind of shrewd. It kind of knows how to handle itself out in wilderness worlds. It knows about danger and protects itself. But we can surmise that Satan has entered into this serpent, and now it's talking. Now, now can you just imagine this situation? I, I know it, like my brain thinks a little bit comically at times. How did the snake begin the conversation? Like, did it fall out of the tree and like, like, oh, Eve, can you give me a hand? You know, like that type of thing. And she's like, oh, Mr. Snake, what happened? And then they, I, I don't know, did it like, like a cobra, like, you know, and, you know Eve, come here. You know, we think it's so just this, this, this ominous thing. I, I know this for, for, at least for me, if a snake came up to me and began to talk, I'd find a shovel because that's just messed up with a talking snake. But however it happens, this creature who now is being controlled by satan begins this this conversation now genesis 3 the world has been going on for a while they're in the garden things are doing well it seems everything in creation has been spoken into creation by the word of god god spoke and it all came to pass and he spoke creation into existence and now Everything that's been created and been created good is going to be attacked. Temptation has now entered into the worlds. And it's so subtle. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, Satan doesn't like completely deny the word of God at this point anyway. He just kind of weaves this the subtle assumption into Eve's mind that maybe God's word is open to interpretation. Maybe we should just look at it a little bit deeper and kind of unpack it for ourselves just to make sure that maybe God is right. Our own interpretation. Let's, shall we, let's judge the word of God. See if it holds up. Seemed like a very innocent question. But the seed of doubt has now been planted in Eve. And that same seed of doubt is continually planted in those who will follow Jesus over and over and over again. Now, Eve, she doesn't set the record straight. She kind of takes this in, and I, I would think she has to mull it over a little bit because of her response. She is going to take the word of God, and she's going to manipulate it. She's going to change it up. She's going to weaken the word. She's going to add to his word. And, and I believe that she's going to soften it, kind of take the, the sharp edges off from around it. I find it interesting that the last chapter of Revelation, it says, don't add or take away from this word or you're going to be in trouble. In the beginning of the Bible, it's exactly what temptation has caused. But we've been weakening and softening and adding to the word of God ever since. Now, chapter 2, verse 16 of Genesis, God said, 
You can eat from any tree. Any tree in the garden, except the one. Any tree. Eve kind of takes the any away and says, yeah, we can eat from the trees in the garden. You may eat the fruit from the trees. And I know that seems subtle. It might be nitpicking. But I believe it's a big deal because the subtlety of temptation is what, it's what pushes us to give into it. Eve kind of weakens the generosity of God. This is all for you. Any tree, except one. It's the one I don't want you. But any other tree is yours. And then, verse 3. But God did say, now, this is where she's going to add to the word of God. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And... You must not touch it, or you'll die. God said, don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. But he never said, don't touch it. Eve has somehow interpreted God to be harsh, and she's added rules to the word of God. She's added, and I I just thought about it last night when I was reviewing my notes, she's added religion to the freedom that God gives us by grace. She seems to think he's harsh in some way, shape, or form. And you know, we at times, we add to the word of God. Let's, let's be honest. Uh, we make things at times unreasonable because we think that people should be doing this, that, and the other thing. And so we kind of take the scripture and we just kind of, this is what it means. I mean, that's why I stand up here. I try to unpack the word of God the best I can. Jesus yelled at the Pharisees and said, you know, you travel miles to find one convert. And then you make them twice the sons of hell that you are. You keep all this stuff on them and you don't even help them. Adding to the word of God. And she says, we're not supposed to touch it or you will die. That's what God said. But that's not what God said. God said, you will certainly die. Without a doubt. Absolutely No second chance. You will certainly die. And it seems that Eve has softened the word of God. But the overall temptation is to view God in a negative light. To see him as kind of stingy and unreasonable. Now Satan sees, he must see that it's working. He's got her hooked. He's got her thinking. She's mulling this stuff over. Because look, verses 4 and 5. You will not certainly die. He knows the word of God. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan knows the word of God better than Adam and Eve. Eve, come on, really? God just wants to keep you down. He wants to keep you subordinate. He wants to keep you his slave. He doesn't want you to rise up and be like him. He's jealous. He wants the number one spot. Not you. Man, if you eat from that tree, you're going to be like him. He doesn't want that. That's why he told you not to eat from the tree. That's the cliff notes. Eve, you're going to know right from wrong. Good from evil. Eve, you can reinterpret life to fit how you want to live. You'll be your own God. 
Isn't that the heart of temptation, the pride of life? I get to play God. And that temptation plays itself out over and over again in the life of the church, in the life of believers. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And there it is, the fall. And I find that, you know, in this description of the fruit... Temptation is always about something that's aesthetically pleasing, right? It's, it's good to the eye. She looks at this and she's like, this fruit looks good. And, and it's, it's always physically appealing. It's like good for food. Now, I don't believe it was an apple. Apples are kind of eh. And a fig. Sin hasn't come into the world yet, so we don't need a fig tree. I think it was mangoes. I mean, what is more beautiful than a ripe mango or possibly papaya, but I'm going with mango. But, but that temptation is always aesthetically pleasing and, and physically um, pleasing. And she sees it's, it's, it's good, it's desirable for gaining wisdom. Temptation is always about the self, what's in it for me. And here's the kicker. Adam seems to have watched this whole exchange with the serpent. It says that he was with her. Now, I guess she could have came back to the tree or went to fetch Adam and said, hey, let's, I don't know if we're adding to scripture or not, but it would seem that Adam was with her. And in 1 Timothy, Paul writes that Adam was not deceived. Eve was deceived. Adam was not. Adam willfully sinned. He wasn't, he wasn't buying it. He's like, nope, that's a talking snake. If I had a shovel. He willfully went, all right, Eve, go ahead. See how it goes. She didn't die. He's thinking, maybe God's word isn't true. Maybe it's all a lie. Give me a piece of that mango. And he eats. And the consequences we have been living with ever since. Sin came into the world through the temptation to doubt the goodness and the word of God and has ripped the very fabric of where we live. And it continues today. Are you sure God said that? You know, God puts those rules on you because he doesn't want you to be happy. Are you sure that's what he told you? I mean, is God really good? I mean, if God was good, all you have to do is watch the news and it might instill some doubt about the goodness of God. This can't be God's plan. It's too hard. Those doubts, the temptation to doubt the word of God. Adam, number one, failed. In the face of the enemy's temptation, he gave in. But the second Adam... Christ, he won't. He will not fail. He will pass the test. And the consequences are equally as weighty and, and as difficult for him as it was for Adam. 
Now, I know that in the email I had referenced Matthew, but I like Mark's version better. So it's the same garden scene of Gethsemane, um, but I'm using for our chat this morning, Mark chapter 14. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here, keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it's possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They didn't know what to say to him. Returning a third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Gethsemane is, the the, the name means oil press or or olive press. And it was probably an olive garden, though John, in his gospel, he's the only one that uses the, the term garden. But it's probably someone Jesus knew, this olive garden. It's not where it's unlimited breadsticks and salad. It's a real olive garden. And so Jesus is there. They seem to go there often. And he's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Overwhelmed. I, I have walked with some people who have suffered tragedies. And from the outside looking, I have seen people overcome with sorrow to the point of death. Man, there's, it's, it's, indescribable. And this is where Jesus is. Overcome to the points of death. Jesus, fully man, and yes, he is fully God. And the term overwhelmed has this meaning of like um, shock or, or he's astonished. He's overcome with the horror of what he's about to experience. And I don't believe it's just the cross Many a martyr has gone to their death in the full confidence that they are dying for Christ. I don't believe, yes, the cross probably is part of it, the physical suffering that he's going to endure. But there's more because he talks about, Father, take this cup. Everything is possible for you, but take this cup from me. He's asking the Father, as this fully human being, something that is contrary to God's plan, God's word. As a man, he had emotions. As a man, he feared. As a man, he had anxiety. It says that he was sweating like drops of blood just just pouring off him. He is under a lot of stress right now. His prayer was, God, man, if there's there's any other way, please, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. But not my will. Yours. Let your will be done. As a man... He cried to God for escape. But ultimately, the Father's will was more important. You see, the cup was filled with all of humanity's sin. All of the the evil that's done under the sun, 
hatred and, and, and murder and arrogance and jealousy and immorality. It's all just, just heaped into this cup and it's going to be heaped upon him. The sin of the world. A million holocausts. Genocide. Heaped onto Jesus. The sin of the entire world. And the cup was also filled with the wrath of God. The wrath of God is going to come upon Christ as a human, because if he wasn't fully human, then it does, it's not going to work. He has to pay the sin of us. And so, yes, he's fully God, but the beautiful poem in Philippians 2, he did not use that to his advantage. The wrath of God was going to be poured out upon him. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes that he became sin who knew no sin. And then in Galatians, it says, he writes that, that, that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. This is the cup that Jesus is going to drink. And yet, through the whole thing, not my will, but yours. The second Adam is not going to fail. He's going to go the distance. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says that, that Jesus was tempted in every way that we have been tempted. And so he knows. He knows what we go through. He knows what it's like to be tempted. Not just in, in behaving and not behaving, but that deep down, doubt the word of God, doubt God's goodness, doubt God's plan, temptation. And I have to just, I have to believe that in that moment when he fell to the ground, praying to his father, he's thinking, you know, this whole humanity sin all on me. Hmm. Uh, and, and the wrath of God, I've seen the wrath of my dad. There was this whole flood thing once. It didn't end well for everyone. Maybe, you know, I'm just not feeling it today, this, this crucifixion thing. He, he must have been tempted to think that God is being selfish. Why should somebody who has not sinned suffer for the sin of everyone else? The innocent suffering for the guilty? That's justice. Maybe he was tempted to think that in his humanness, he could come up with a better plan. You know, God, we can create a brother look just like me. We'll send him to the cross. I wonder if he doubted that it was God's plan at all. Like, maybe... Maybe God forgot me. I mean, he cried out on the cross, Father, why have you forsaken me? But you see, Jesus withstood the temptation to doubt. And he submitted to the Father's plan, no matter how messed up it seemed at the time. Two men were faced with big decisions. Tempted in all the ways that we are. One failed and gave in. The other succeeded. Both had huge consequences. One decision wrecked havoc on the worlds. The other will bring peace to the worlds. One decision separated us from God. The other is reconciling us back to God. See, the difference, the difference is why was Jesus better? And, I, you know, it's really easy to say, well, yeah, he was fully man, but he was fully God. And so, you know, that God part, that's, 
that helped them out quite a bit. It's not true. He was fully man. He was fully God. But Jesus shows us in this story a better way. And it's the way of prayer. It's the way of prayer. His, his entire ministry is depending, dependent upon prayer. Time in the Father's presence, seeking and asking and knocking. Three times he went to the Father to pray. First time he comes back, he's like, yo, Pete, man, you're sleeping? You can even wait with me for an hour? You can even stay watch for an hour? Now, I guess that whole hour thing could just be kind of a uh, general designation of time, or maybe he was there on his face calling out to the Father for an hour. But we know that he came, went and prayed again and came back, and went and prayed again and came back. In his humanness, Jesus knew he would not make it without prayer. He knew. In fact, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's telling of the story, he tells the disciples, watch and pray so you don't fall into temptation. Watch and pray. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, knew that he could not resist the temptation to doubt the word of God without the discipline of prayer, of going right to the Father and praying. And I got to say, how much more then do we need prayer in our lives? How much more do we need to depend upon it to live in victory? How much more do we need it to walk in harmony with what God has planned for each and every one of us? Prayer. How much more do we need In Luke's gospel, it says that when Jesus prayed, an angel came to him and and ministered to him, strengthened him. How much more do we need that angel's presence in our life through prayer? The book of Hebrews, there's this couple verses that say, Hebrews 5, it says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Jesus was not ashamed of coming before the Father. In all of his brokenness and weakness and temptation and crying out to him, Dad, if there's another way, I'm in but I want to fulfill your plan. I want to fulfill your will. He wasn't ashamed to do it in front of the disciples because he knew that what these these men were going to go through. He knew what was ahead for them. He wanted to show them that there's nothing wrong with coming before the Lord and crying out in distress and brokenness and weakness. It's the only thing that we've got. It's the only way to stand against the lie of the enemy that whispers continually in your head, really? Is that what God said? Everyone who follows Christ will one day walk into their own garden of Gethsemane. And you will be tempted to doubt the goodness and the love of God. You will be tempted to doubt the word of God. You will be tempted to doubt that he has ever spoken to you or he's... He's involved in your life, or he even cares. See, that kind of temptation follows us around, waiting to pounce on us. 
Because if Satan cannot have your salvation, he wants to rob you of the life that Christ came to give us. If he cannot take away eternity from you, he wants to make you as miserable as possible here on earth. And so how do we overcome? How do we not fall prey to the whisper of the enemy? We need to be dependent on prayer. Dependent, addicted to prayer. There's this thing I I saw years ago, and it says, it's like this general thing. It says, a person can live 40 days without food, four days without water, and four minutes without air. I don't know if that's true or not, but here's what I know. That a Christian cannot live the victorious life Christ came and died for without praying consistently in their life. Victorious. Yeah, you cannot pray and come to church and, you know, do your thing and, and, and survive and scrape through, fuddle through life trying to just, like, keep your, keep your nose above water and you just feel like you're sunk in quicksand up to here. Yeah, I mean, rock and roll. But prayer gives us the victory. And I don't mean like only when things going bad kind of prayer. I don't mean like the drive up window type of, you, you know, uh-oh, got a big test this week in school, better pray. Uh-oh, job interview. Uh-oh, no money in the bank. Uh-oh. I mean, it's, yeah, you should pray for those things. But I'm talking about consistent, deliberate, everyday, submissive prayer. I was reading this, this past week. It had nothing to do with prepping for today, but there's this... There's this, uh, in First Samuel, Samuel the prophet, he's kind of talking back with, you know, the people of Israel. And, and he says this line, he said, he said, um, he tells the people, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And, and I look back and, and far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I thought, wow, is it sin not to pray? Have we given in to the lie of the enemy by not praying? The church in general, you know, I really do believe it's, it's starving because lack of prayer. And in general, I'm going to say that we just don't care to pray. I mean, we know we should. And when things get really rough, we do. But priority-wise, disciplines, hmm, probably not. Again, we're talking about those other churches on either side of us, not this one. Jesus knows our weakness. He brought the disciples. He left some. He said, come on, you three, you come with me. And then he left them there. He says, he says watch and pray so you don't fall into temptation. And then he went a stone's throw away. They must have seen him before they fell asleep three times on him. See, prayer takes an act of will. It really does. Because the enemy doesn't want you to pray. Because prayer is the battle plan. Prayer is the weapon. And prayer is the victory in life. Prayer is the battle plan. Prayer is the weapon. And prayer is victory. 
And if he can just keep us from praying or making our prayers just kind of scattered, you know, throw some thank you gods against the wall, see what sticks, he wins. He's beaten us. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, it says, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful. So I thought we'd end with a song this morning. Um, I don't even know if we have the words, but that's okay. Could we have a time of repentance? That we would repent that we have listened to the lie of the enemy that says, you can get through this on your own. Could we have a time to repent to say, you know, I just don't come before the Lord like I should, like he desires me to. This is not about legalism. This is not about shame. This is not about guilt. This is about heartfelt repentance saying, I need the Lord more than my life shows it. That we would come before him and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I've listened to the enemy. I'm sorry that I take things into my own hands. I'm sorry that I'm disobedient. I'm sorry that I doubt you, that I don't trust you. I don't think you're good sometimes. And say, Father, will you strengthen my heart for prayer? Will you strengthen my heart to come to you in my brokenness, in my weakness, in my doubt, in my shame, in my guilt? Because it's in his presence that we're set free. It's in presence, in his presence that we're forgiven. It's in, pre- it's in presence where, where guilt and shame is just pushed aside and you've been made white as snow. Um, I didn't ask anybody to come and pray up here, but uh, you know, Jim and is Bonnie here, and um, I don't know who else. Maybe got one more, two more people that would pray with others. If if you want to be prayed for, that's cool. Um, but let's just have a time of ministry before the Lord, and um, and in that dialogue, a time of repentance.